Spirituality Challenged is a podcast recorded on Canadian Treaty 1 territory, and that the land on which we gather is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Diné people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We acknowledge that our water is sourced from Shoal Lake 41st Nation, which is located on Treaty 3 territory. Spirituality Challenged respects the spirit and intent of treaties and treaty making and are open to future partnerships with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people in the spirit of truth, reconciliation, and collaboration. On March 12, 2004, after celebrating my sister's birthday, my parents drove her to Saskatchewan to play against a basketball team from a rival school. They left me behind for the weekend to watch the house in Winnipeg while they were gone. I was 20 years old that year. I had no friends. I was studying at a trade school and I hated it. On the 13th, I was home alone on a Saturday night. I was miserable. I was sneaking sips of my parents' wine from the fridge. I rented raunchy teen comedies from the Pick-A-Flick movie rental store to watch by myself. That night, I knew something had to change. I found a Bible that my mom left on the dining room table and decided to read it. After reflecting a little bit on the passages and how bad life was as an autistic hip-hop artist, I decided I had nothing to lose. On Sunday the 14th, my life was completely turned upside down. I walked into Waves of Glory, a little charismatic church just off of Portage on Furby Street. In case you're not familiar, this isn't your grandma's church, even though the organ was in one corner. There was the usual old people in the congregation singing to God in worship, but they had their hands raised. Some of them were shouting, randomly yelling out hallelujah, and the band, wow, the musicians on stage had guitars, a bass, and drums. This was a full-on rock and roll group with a built man that had a voice that could rival John Legend. Now I had no idea what happened that day, but I felt the presence of God hit me and I fell on my knees and started to cry. I was bawling in the middle of a worship service. I wanted God to change my life, to give me friends, to give me a job where I could support myself and a future wife. Everyone around me was in their own little world. Nobody came to pray for me. Nobody asked me why I was crying. Nobody even had the time to answer my questions I had when it came to reading the Bible or learning more about what kind of fire this was that came upon me. Little did I know, even if I walked out of the church and went about the next week like nothing happened, I knew I had to figure out why I had such an emotional response to an ordinary church service. Was it the tenacity at which they prayed and called on God for his glory? Was it the voice of the singer who sounded like an angel? It's taken me almost 20 years to figure all this out. And that's why I'm here with you today. Welcome to Spiritually Challenged, dear listener. I am your host, Aaron Parsons. On this podcast, we uncover the rarely discussed history and expose sources behind controversial Christian ideologies while speaking truth to power. We try to cover as much ground within an hour on one topic in each episode, so sit back, relax, and prepare to be challenged.
In 2006, I encountered a fellow hip-hop artist. I don't remember what his name was, but he wanted to play the rap game differently. His music was very amateurish at the time, but he wanted to sound like a radio artist. And to do that, he wanted to work with Winnipeg two-time Grammy Award winner Fresh IE, also known as Rob Wilson. Nevertheless, he was quite a trooper. He did work alongside Fresh eventually, and released some music on a site called SoundClick. When I saw this kid live, he was still struggling with an addiction with drugs and alcohol. He was part of a group called Teen Challenge, a ministry created to train young women and men to get past addictions of various things, including drugs, alcohol, and porn, and to reintegrate into the working world. This kid and a fellow Teen Challenge rap enthusiast started freestyling a rap battle between the devil and this artist. It wasn't anything deep, and some of the lyrics were actually kind of corny. He had lines like, You got nothing on us, and his name we rebuke ya. If we get the napalm, we definitely nuke ya. But his lyrics also talked about some very bizarre things. Things like fire tunnels and the Shekinah glory, getting drunk in the spirit, and soaking up the grave. After the service, I did get a taste of one of those weird things that this rapper was talking about on stage. A fire tunnel. The fire tunnel in this church involved people forming two parallel lines between where the chairs were and the stage were with the band performing on it. People in the lines would pray and glossolalia thing known as speaking in tongues and would yell things like more lord or fire and whoever went through this tunnel would fall over and have to crawl away or if they were able to handle everything that was going on they would stumble through and they would lie down as if they went through the ringer in a torture chamber or something. Even though I knew quite a bit of bible after studying for a couple of years, I wanted a piece of the action. I wanted to know more about this enthusiastic fire and how it could spread so that more Christians would get the sticks out of their legalistic butts. So I decided to go through the fire tunnel. Looking back on what happened, the story went something like this. I went through the fire tunnel and I did feel some spiritual stuff and I did feel the communion and unity among the people that were there. But I staggered out because people were putting pressure on me to go down. And eventually when I got out, I did fall on my back. And when I was on my back, I started to cry. This happened multiple times in these services. When I finally accepted the fact that I was on the spectrum, I realized one thing. These kind of services caused me sensory overload. For many years, people have wondered, what kind of services are these? What kind of Christianity is this? Many have wondered how we got the teachings behind these movements. Some have wondered if this was real Christianity or if it was just a crazy form of a certain kind of denomination. There are other churches like this where people do more absurd off-the-wall things like dropkick a pastor or wave flags or bark like a dog. Years after I left the church, I just wanted to start over with my life as a musician and audio enthusiast. But this question kept on nagging me. It kept on running through my head. What the hell is this? Eventually, I came across a podcast series called Charismatic Revival Fury by two professors in religious studies, 
Professor Bradley Onishi of the Straight White American Jesus podcast, and Dr. Matthew Taylor. They talked about all those same bizarre things where people did fire tunnels and got drunk in the spirit. And while I love what these two doctors have done in terms of their research, and I highly recommend you listen to the series that they did on the subject, they missed a key component that I wanted to explore. The 19th or early 20th century history behind this. When did it all start? Who solidified some of the teachings behind these things that caused revivals? And is any of this kind of spirituality even biblical? Well, dear listener, we're going to go on quite a journey today. We're going to talk about the Azusa Street revivals and the real truth behind the formation of something called the New Apostolic Reformation. First off, what is the New Apostolic Reformation? The New Apostolic Reformation is a Pentecostal offshoot that appropriates New Age spirituality into Christian spiritual practice. It is people involved in thousands of networks of churches and ministries that share core beliefs involving taking dominion over the church and the entire world. And one of its goals is to redefine Christianity so that it's not associated with people in old churches sitting and singing in the pews. And while I think this is a good start, I think Dr. Taylor does a much better job explaining what it is. So I'm going to give you my definition of the New Apostolic Reformation. It's a fairly small network of leaders who congealed around a guy named C. Peter Wagner in the early 2000s. It's the, and Wagner was brilliant at networking. And so he gathered this network of people around him. Most of them thought that they were latter-day apostles and prophets sent to lead the church into revival and transformation. And this network ultimately came to believe that they were destined to lead the entire globe into reformation and transformation. And so they had developed this particular theology and that theology has spread. Many of these people have become celebrities in the independent charismatic world. They're name brands in that world. And he was the one who coined this term New Apostolic Reformation that he believed was going to be the key growth of the church, the key edge of growth in the church in the 21st century. Alright, so now that we've named the thing, let's explore the origin story behind Pentecostalism. While this podcast focuses on the wacky history of Christian belief, we're going to have to visit a little bit of biblical text to provide some context. If Bible stories aren't your thing or they trigger some past trauma, by all means skip ahead and take care of yourself. Now, Elijah and Elisha were Old Testament prophets in the books of First and Second Kings. They spoke for God and performed miracles while King Ahab and King Ahaziah were on the throne. God trusted in Elijah and Elisha to lead the charge for the righteousness of Israel, even though they were worshiping other gods. Eventually, Elijah was going to literally be taken into heaven, and before it happens, the two of them go to the Jordan River. Elijah asks Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Elisha answers, 
Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. The two prophets took a walk, and out of nowhere, horses leading a chariot of fire sped towards Elijah and whisked him up into heaven. Elisha screamed, and while mourning the disappearance of his friend, tore his clothes in two. Elisha then noticed Elijah's cloak had fallen from the chariot of fire. He took the cloak and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Using Elijah's cloak, he slapped the water and with it yelled, Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? The water split and Elisha crossed over. The prophets from Jericho saw this and said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And then they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. They knew Elisha received what he asked Elijah for. Now, how does this play into early Pentecostalism? The birth of Pentecostalism was the result of intense spiritual exploration that began during the Industrial Revolution. America was becoming more and more prosperous after the Civil War ended, and certain Christian groups were constantly searching for things called Second Blessings and Second Baptisms, which is based on the Second Kings scripture that I was talking about. Now, in the New Apostolic Reformation, this is what's considered the double portion blessing. This search is how the holiness movement began in the late 19th century. Let's begin with the story of John Dowie. Dowie was a Scottish evangelist who started a healing ministry in the US. Because this ministry didn't make big mega church bucks back then, John had to periodically work for his uncle in Australia. Eventually, he became a minister down under and pastored several congregations. After one church he was preaching burned to the ground, he traveled back to the United States in 1888 where he founded the Christian Catholic Apostolic Church. Eventually, he was charged for medical malpractice because of his healing services. Influenced by New Thought, which we'll be covering in a later episode, Dowie influenced early churches to speak and manifest divine healing, expect an anti-miracle revival to spread across the world, and to re-establish apostolic offices and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Charles Parham was also a key figure in the birth of Pentecostalism. He observed the meetings of Benjamin Irwin, founder of the Fire-Baptized Holiness Church, and was deeply influenced by Irwin's Third Blessing Doctrine. Parham eventually took all these ideas, and Pentecostal theology, which laid the basic foundation of the Pentecostal movement we know of today. Oh, and fun fact, Charles Parham is gay, which eventually caused an uproar in the early churches just like it does today. The early days of Pentecostalism were characterized by a belief in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues, I outlined earlier that was it was glossolalia, is considered concrete evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit according to Pentecostals and those in the New Apostolic Reformation. On top of Pentecostals believing in divine healing and tongue speaking, they were also looking into restoration of the offices of apostles and prophets who will rule and reign. But instead, thanks to fundamentalism and mainline movements, Pentecostalism had many divisions into a wide range of beliefs and practices, including the prosperity gospel and a focus on evangelism and missions. Despite the divisions, the core beliefs of Pentecostalism included the emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the importance of spiritual gifts.
On April 18, 1906, an earthquake hit the San Francisco barrier with violent shockwaves that lasted 45 to 60 seconds. The earthquake also shook areas around southern Oregon to north of San Diego and into central Nevada. It was the most destructive earthquake recorded in North American history at the time. Over 700 people died, 515 blocks were destroyed. There were ruptured gas lines everywhere. Some Christians at the time believed that the earthquake was a sign of God's judgment, and this fear contributed to the spiritual atmosphere of seeking prayer and tracks indicating Jesus would come back soon. The Azusa Street Revival began a few months after the earthquake, but did not directly happen because of it. From here, pastors that I used to listen to go into the story of a man named William J. Seymour, who was a student of Charles Parham that would learn from outside the door of Parham's classes because he was black. Seymour was invited to lead a small church in Los Angeles and was locked out of his church just because speaking in tongues still wasn't received well in general at the time. But here's the real story. Seymour decided to hold independent house church meetings instead. But then in the future, he was able to hold other services in a former African Methodist Episcopal Church building at 312 Azusa Street. The strange things began at these services, which included dancing, jumping up and down, falling into trances, shaking, rattling and rolling, hysteria from fasting, strange animal noises. These chaotic services lasted more than three years. They would start early in the morning and go on for 10 hours straight or more at a time. Large numbers of people visited Azusa Street for their own experience similar to my own, and they spread the revival to other churches. There was no order of the services at all, and usually no one was leading. The church decided that whoever was anointed with the message would stand and deliver it. It could be a man, could be a woman, could be a child. It didn't matter. The revivals were met with a ton of controversy. There was one incident where a man shook so violently that someone called an ambulance. And when the doctor came and the man was shaking, he told the doctor, Don't touch me! This is the power of God! The doctor wisely replied, If that is the power of God, it is giving you a devil of a shaking. The Azusa Street meetings were so wild that police had to visit regularly and the news reported the events with varying accounts and opinions. When Parham attended one of the services, he was shocked. He later called the group Sensational Holy Rollers and said that the Azusa Street meetings were largely characterized by manifestations of the flesh. Still, the revival attracted people from all over the world and became a center of Pentecostalism. The revival had two peaks, the first from 1906 to 1909, and the second from 1911 to 1913. After Seymour died, the Azusa Street Mission struggled to be relevant to California's spiritual climate since 1922. But the revival's impact continued to spread throughout the world. After Azusa Street, Amy Semple McPherson found the International Church of the Four Square Gospel and John G. Lake, who held the first healing rooms while extorting money and exaggerating what God was doing, started the Apostolic Faith Mission in South Africa. Many other spirit-filled figures contributed to the growth and spread of Pentecostalism through their preaching, teaching, healing, and even financial ministries. Another important but brief revival happened shortly after World War II. 
This revival was known as the Latter Rain Movement in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. They put big emphasis on a post-war move of the Holy Spirit that would conclude the church's work in colonizing the world with Christianity. And as a result, that would initiate events in Revelation that led to the second coming of Christ. The Latter Rain Movement also taught that as the end of the world was coming, a group of quote-unquote overcomers would be released from the church. These people were called the Manifest Sons of God, and they would receive the spiritual bodies mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. They would become immortal and receive various spiritual superpowers, including the ability to change their physical appearance, to speak any language, to teleport from place to place, and to perform healings and other crazy miracles. They would spread the gospel throughout the world, and that would kickstart the millennial reign of Christ. Because of this belief alone, almost half of the churches in Saskatchewan became part of the Latter Rain Movement and split from the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. Despite all that, all of these events helped to establish Pentecostal denominations and organizations. And that is how millions of Pentecostals, Charismatics, and the New Apostolic Reformation trace their beginnings to Azusa Street, Charlie Brown, er, dear listener. In January of 1994, the Toronto Blessing, also known as the Father's Blessing, or the Renewal, began in the storefront facility of the Toronto Airport Vineyard Fellowship. By mid-1994, people flocked in from across North America and Britain. Soon the crowds became more diverse as Australians, Europeans, Malaysians, Africans, and others found their way to the congregation's new commodious quarters in a converted warehouse close to the Toronto airport. The revival's characteristic physical manifestations, folksy music, and dance spread beyond the vineyard into congregations of many denominations whose pastors hoped for increased fervor in their ministries, especially in Great Britain, Australia, and New Zealand. Dancing, shouting, running, falling, and other ridiculous behavior led Vineyard Fellowship founder John Wimber in 1995 to expel the Toronto Vineyard Fellowship and its pastor John Arnott from the denomination. The Toronto congregation changed its name to Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship. After five years, revival services continued six nights each week, and Arnott has estimated that 2.5 million people have attended. If you want to get a good story behind the Toronto Blessing, check out the Heaven Bent podcast. Now you're probably wondering, dear listener, when did this strange fire start to bring about the crazy and wild stuff? Well, we covered a bit of backstory of the earliest revivals. Let's visit one of the earliest and official New Apostolic Reformation churches that opened up in the 50s, Bethel Redding Church in California. In 1952, several conservative families started meeting in a house church in Reading. In 1954, two years later, this house church turned into Bethel Reading and became an Assemblies of God church. In 1968, Bill Johnson's father, Earl Johnson, became the pastor there, and between the years of 1969 and 1995, 
Bill was connected and mentored by C. Peter Wagner, while also inspired by Pastor John Arnott and the events of the Toronto Blessing. Earl eventually gave his son the chance to lead the congregation in 1996. When the church members were given the chance to vote for Bill Johnson as the lead senior pastor of Bethel Reading Church, he gave one ultimatum. The church had to be passionate about revival and that the subject must never change. Eventually in 2005, Bethel Church left the Assemblies of God denomination and became a non-denominational church. The congregation built connections with church leaders in the New Apostolic Reformation like Chuck Pierce, Lance Walnow, Cheon, Becca Greenwood, and Dutch Sheets, the man who sent an army holding appeal to heaven flags to Washington on January 6, 2021. If you have any doubts about this information, check out the podcast series Charismatic Revival Fury. And if you're a Christian listening to this, go read the book, A Hidden Path, Bethel Reading and Beyond by Maria Kirkpatrick, Joy McLeod, Oscar Whitmore, and Barbara Hansel. Now, before we go forward, dear listener, I just want to warn you that when I heard about this connection for the first time, it broke my brain. But after reading the information twice, it made sense. So here's what I'm going to tell you. When people don't tell you what their movement is officially called, this is a big red flag in any religion, even non-Christian, Hindu, Buddha, Islam. It's a big red flag. Most of the people who are part of the New Apostolic Reformation are well-meaning Christians who don't even know the origins of some of the practices the Toronto Airport Church or Catch the Fire Ministries Canada actually do. They don't even know it's called the New Apostolic Reformation. And quite a few of these practices, they actually have direct connections to New Age spirituality. So, what do New Age practicing folks believe? New Agers believe that every single thing, including God, is made up of pure energy. To New Agers, Everything is God, even human beings. This is why some new apostolic reformation folk call themselves little gods. According to the book, A Hidden Path, there is no distinction between God being outside of humanity or that God is only a quote-unquote presence that lives within. The goal of the new age is that one can achieve access to this presence within. The Christian can become one with the universe and connect to their higher or spiritual selves, which in the New Apostolic Reformation rankings is more important than the soul or the body. New Agers believe that transformation must happen after awakening the higher self. Another goal of the New Age is to climb to higher spiritual planes in order to receive ancient hidden secrets and knowledge daily from their quote-unquote masters and other unknown sources. The absolute goal is to achieve consciousness that's equivalent to Jesus. And also, the agenda of the New Age is to have their ideologies infiltrate churches and all of society. And they sure as hell have been successful in doing that, as I'll explain later on. The New Age disciples want to bring peace and enlightenment to the world through a Christian's acceptance and practice of their beliefs. This is why the New Age movement has many similarities to the New Apostolic Reformation. 
They both have thousands of networks and organizations working for world unity based upon religious experiences and beliefs that have their roots in occult practice and Eastern mysticism. They both teach that the old has become stale and unexciting while suggesting that God has new revelation for us today. See Peter Wagner uses the metaphor of new wineskins to help convey this idea. Jesus taught about this, uh, new wineskins and old wineskins. So anyway, where we are now is that I believe our old wineskin, for most of us, is denomination. And our new wineskin is the new apostolic reformation. Other similarities between the New Apostolic Reformation and the New Age movement include communication with the dead, known as grave soaking or grave sucking, astral projection or visiting heaven like in the movie Heaven is for Real, conversations and fascinations with angels and demons, in other words, thinking that Satan is everywhere and demons are influencing people and things, but also thinking angels are in things called glory clouds. And of course, receiving hidden secret knowledge other than from our five senses or the Bible, which is pretty much like receiving wacky things that are not biblical, such as the Seven Mountains Mandate. At Bethel, Bill Johnson's wife, Benny, also uses tuning forks. Here's what she's written in her blog. I was talking with Ray Hughes the other day and was telling him about using a 528 Hertz tuning fork as a prophetic act. Someone told me that this tuning fork is called the tuning fork of love. Go ahead and Google it. Ray told me that science has said that this fork is the sound that holds earth. That blew me away. One thing about this tuning fork is that the science tells us that the sound of this fork brings healing. She also promotes the practice of grounding, which involves walking barefoot for at least a half an hour a day in order to connect our bodies with the energies of the earth. If a Christian does this, it can recharge their bodies and recalibrate their cells and hormones while presenting the body with anti-inflammatory benefits. This is wild stuff. The Johnsons at Bethel also recommend acupuncture and Christian yoga, which has roots in Eastern practices including Hinduism. The word yoga means union. It is the union of the individual with Brahman, the Hindu equivalent of God. And while I'm a Filipino now agnostic who has no problem with white folks practicing Eastern religion, I just find that the Johnsons take their knowledge of this alternative health from Brooke Boone and they don't get it from God himself. While Brooke's message has some Christian concepts to it, she was involved in writing a book called Hatha Yoga Illustrated which has nothing to do with Christianity. And Bill Johnson doesn't even hide his fascination with New Age beliefs. He literally said this word for word. Many prominent pastors and conference speakers add fuel to the fire of fear by assuming that because the New Age promotes it, its origins must be from the devil. I find that form of reasoning weak at best. If we follow that line of thought, we will continue to give the devil the tools that God has given for success for us in life and ministry. Like I said, both movements are being used to reform Christianity as we know it today. So many of these new age ideas have crept into the church for over a century, 
and a good number of people are only starting to wake up and understand what's going on since January 6th and the Freedom Convoy in Canada. My wife and I officially stopped doing church in 2022. While I'm sure she'll explain her side of the story in a few years when she's ready, here's how it started for me. In 2010, I was at a conference at Bethel Church Brandon, where Kevin Thompson was speaking. During that time, a woman came to pray for me. She spoke a word of knowledge and told me my brain was improperly wired. I never told her I was diagnosed with Asperger's in 2002 or that I was on the spectrum. I don't know if somehow somebody told her or she just knew by looking at me or, or can tell by my body language, but that day, I was so gaslit that I found myself on the altar begging God to make me a neurotypical. Eventually, I realized that I would never know if God would heal autism or not. Because if I started acting like a neurotypical, I don't know how aware I would be that my brain has changed. Over time, I learned to accept who I was. Unfortunately, that also came with some heavy consequences. I lost jobs and freelance clients because I needed accommodations. I got pushback the more I actually thought for myself. When I told my Christian friends that I was on the spectrum, they called me a liar or told me I was demon-possessed or that God doesn't make mistakes when he forms people in their mother's wombs, that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made despite how my brain works. Eventually in 2019, when I saw Christians in comment sections making fun of Greta Thunberg, when I saw old friends from NAR churches saying that demons were speaking through Greta, I felt like they were also talking about me. I eventually came to the conclusion that Christians are eventually going to persecute and even start killing autistic people like me slowly. I know it's coming at some point and I wish I was wrong. But after seeing how Christians, especially people in the New Apostolic Reformation, have moral panic attacks and go after any kind of group they're uncomfortable with since Trump's inauguration in 2017, from Jews to indigenous to blacks to woke liberals to trans kids and to even people with anxiety issues, they will go after anyone who isn't straight. They will go after anyone who isn't white. And by that, I mean conforming to a system that is at the top of the racial hierarchy regardless of skin color while disregarding a colonial past. They'll go after anyone who isn't rich or anyone who is neurodivergent. And they won't stop. They haven't stopped. They've kept the charade up ever since the end of the Civil War. If you don't believe me, do an internet search on Project 2025 or the New Apostolic Reformation idea of the Seven Mountains Mandate, which TikTok user Coyote Annie covers. There is a plot to overthrow the United States by a well-funded, well-strategized, and well-organized group. The scary part is they're actually succeeding. Dominion theology, also known as Dominionism, is a group of Christian political ideologies that seek to institute a nation that is governed by Christians. The Seven Mountain Mandate is part of Dominionism, and they believe that Christianity should be reflected in seven areas that they believe control society, which are family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and government. Their declared goal is to take control of society and the U.S. government. And this isn't some fringe group. 
Dominionists have been infiltrating the conservative party for years. A few of the things that Dominionists believe that they want reflected in American public policy is the death penalty for anyone who's homosexual, women who don't save themselves for marriage, adulterers, blasphemers, psychics, and juvenile delinquents. They've even endorsed public executions and public stonings. This ideology, along with the formation of the Council for National Policy, has been successful in taking away rights for millions of Americans. This is who is behind the overturning of Roe versus Wade. This is why Republicans are attacking trans rights, universal health care. These people supported segregation. And because they believe wealth is a blessing, this is why they align with billionaires and big oil execs. Companies that aren't even religious have it at their best interest to align with these people because the policies that these people are trying to enact benefit them financially. Now, before I go, I do want to say just one more thing. I wish that an actual Jesus was real as what I encountered in Waves of Glory that day back in 2004. There are days I wish God would actually speak to me, but without the whole weird side effects of Pentecostalism where we lose control. I do like the idea of a burning speaking bush experience found in Exodus. I do find the idea of an actual messiah walking around with not so great clothes and a soft demeanor, giving great applicable advice to ordinary people during a difficult time of being ruled by powerful oligarchs, I find that fascinating. But because I'm autistic and agnostic, I believe that there is a certain way to how the universe is ordered and how every living thing works and eats and interacts with each other. And there's something wrong with religion if a certain god needs people to completely take over a country or a movement or a culture. If god needs people in order to actually ensure his will takes place, that kind of sounds like a pretty weak god to me. I believe if god actually exists, he would operate with a morality code that's metaphorically based on boolean or if-else conditions and not based on a colonial agenda and everything this God does would be merciful, and it would be outside of our control no matter what we do. But he, she, or it, that God wouldn't be cruel. This God would do anything to ensure that life would be better, and that the good things would actually happen and all the bad things would disappear without us praying or doing weird things like rolling on the ground. Or he would actually tell us why everything happens for a reason using actual logic involving science and technology. Because to me, faith isn't good enough anymore. There has to be a reason why I'm still struggling with a back injury even if I pray, exercise, and stretch. Ooh, it's because he's faithful and just- No, that's not good enough. I'm in pain. And there has to be a reason why I can't find full-time work in audio or coding while everyone else is getting jobs left and right. Well, maybe God wants you to just wait on him or stop being lazy. Or maybe we live in an ableist society with broken sites like Indeed and this society doesn't respect autistic people or give them a chance even when they're homeless and begging on the streets. In my experience, the more I learned, the better I felt and the better I became as a person. And the Christianity I grew up with only restricted the way I articulate logic and actual facts. It prevented me from actually thinking for myself. 
The reason more and more people are pushing back against evangelical Christianity, especially this kind of new apostolic reformation stuff, is because they are threatened by people who believe that God should be on top and nobody else, not because they want to do non-Christian things. And you know, if I want proof that God is real, I actually really don't care anymore. I need more than miracles. I need more than, you know, the strange glossolalia of speaking in tongues or falling and rolling on the floor, or sermons, or even science and technology catching up just to indicate that a higher power exists and is at work. I need to see every single thing in society completely shift, because of this God, into something else entirely in ways that everyone can get on board with. And even if that does happen, even if God actually does stuff, we're not going to see any evidence. Even though things move and everything changes and, and progress actually happens, it actually moves little by little. And in reality, it doesn't move because of a deity. It moves because a few rare people actually give a damn about everyone in society. It doesn't matter if they're straight, LGBTQ, indigenous, autistic, black, ADHD, non-binary, trans, or even good or evil. A god should ensure that everyone has the right to live in actual freedom. Unfortunately, one man's freedom is another man's prison. And to me, we're all eventually going to be trapped in this new age ideological colonialism forever.